Today's reading from the Word of God comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, Anchor Bay. Happy Advent. My name is Brennan, one of the pastors here. So glad to be worshiping with you this third Sunday of Advent. How cool is it that we have an organ and an organist and a choir? Can we just thank everyone for that? We didn't have that in my church growing up, so it's just like a special treat for me to be able to experience that with you. Uh, So I know we are in our our kind of final week before Christmas. Everyone's kind of scrambling to get things done and attend parties. And so I just want us to take a deep, a deep breath and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning. Even if we have like lots of things going on in our heads, let's just invite God to speak with us exactly where we are and invite us deeper and deeper into the Christmas story and the story of the incarnation. So I will give us a minute to just be quiet And consider what we brought into the room this morning, and then I will open us with a word of prayer. God, in the midst of all the the big and the colorful and the glitter and the noise of this season, it is so good to have these quiet spaces where we can center ourselves on you and on who you are and who you invite us to be. We thank you for the, the joy and the magic of the season and also, as Levi prayed before, for an opportunity to be honest about where we are sometimes in this place too and to offer those parts of ourselves, our grief, our loneliness, our sadness, to you and to be completely honest before you and before one another about everything that we bring into this season as we close out the year and enter a new one. And so this morning we pray that you would meet us in our unique places, that you would 
challenge and change us to be honest before you, to see ourselves as you see us, and to fall in love with you in deeper and deeper ways. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to open this morning with a story, and it starts with a present. It is a birthday present, not a Christmas present, though. So imagine that it is February 9th, 9th, 1880, and we are six miles outside of town in Jericho, Vermont, on the Bentley family potato farm. Mom and Pop Bentley have scrimped and saved. They want to get the perfect present, the perfect birthday present for their son's birthday. So they get him a microscope. And Wilson opens the microscope, and he's over the moon. He's so excited, and it's February, and it's Vermont. So he runs outside, and he grabs a handful of snow, and he picks out a single snowflake, and he puts it under his microscope. And what Wilson sees under his microscope changes his life. He sees this. (laughs) A little tiny Olaf. Just kidding. What Wilson saw was something a little bit more like this. And it's magic to him. He just thinks it is absolutely beautiful. It has this otherworldly kind of beauty. And he starts to call snowflakes like little masterpieces, perfect miracles. These, these are just, to him, they're works of art that have fallen from the sky. But, but he thinks these little masterpieces, they, they fall from the sky and then they melt and they're gone forever, which is absolutely tragic. And so he d- decides to dedicate his entire life to preserving what snowflakes look like so that they won't get lost. And he persuades his parents to spend some extra money and to buy him a camera. Well, they're from a farming family and cameras cost a lot of money, but they, they work and they get a camera for him anyway. And he, he jury rigs it to the microscope so he can take, pic- take pictures with the microscope and he gets, wants to get these little tiny pictures of snowflakes. And it takes him a whole year to figure it out. But by the time he turns 19, he finally photographs his first snowflake. It is the first picture ever of a snowflake. Now, over the course of his life, Wilson Bentley would photograph over 5,000 crystals, and he would sell copies of the photos at five cents a pop to to places like Harvard and the British Museum and the U.S. Weather Bureau and, and to magazines like National Geographic and Nature. And he's enamored with these snowflakes, and, and the world is enamored with these beautiful snowflakes. And in one paper, just one paper, a scientific paper, he uses the word beautiful or beauty over 40 times. Now, a lot of other scientists try to to document snowflakes in the same way, but no one can do it quite like this farm boy from Jericho, Vermont. No one until this guy, Gustav Hellman. He looks like a Gustav. Gustav is a meteorologist in Germany, and he sees Bentley's uh, photographs, and he wants in on the snowflake action, because obviously. And he hires a microphotographer to take pictures of snowflakes like Bentley had been doing. A microphotographer is basically just a little tiny photographer who takes regular size <laughs> pictures. <laughs> Thanks, Jess. Uh, Bentley, Bentley and Hellman's team, they use pretty similar technology. They combine a microscope and a camera. But what the Germans on Hellman's team find is completely different from what Wilson Bentley was showing to the world. The snowflakes that that Hellman's team find are like completely jacked up. They're flawed, they're lopsided, they're a little whopper-jawed. They are not perfect miracles or little masterpieces at all. They're just basically like a big splat. It would be like if a, a space alien has only seen what humans look like from glossy magazines, and then they get their hands on a normal family photo album, and they're like, oh, oh, okay, so that's what most humans actually look like. 
So the Germans decide that they are gonna confront Bentley. They call him a fraud. Clearly, he is altering his photographs, and it turns out he is. There's a particular way that Bentley would prepare his photographs. He would use a penknife on the negatives to clean up all the flaws and all the imperfections and to add little patterns to the crystals so that the snowflake would look like how he thought a snowflake should look, not like the da damaged abnormalities that he got falling from the sky. On his negatives, he creates perfect snowflakes, ideal snowflakes. They're the snowflakes that he imagines all snowflakes should be. Well, the Germans say this is misleading. It mutilates the snowflake, but Bentley argues back. He actually has a reason that he's doing this, and he says it's the snowflake that's been mutilated by the atmosphere coming from the way, on the way down, and what he's doing is he's restoring the snowflake back to what it was supposed to look like in the beginning. He says natural snowflakes need a little Photoshopping to return to their perfect form, to be presentable, to be beautiful. So chiseling them a little is the only way to preserve how they were actually intended to be. Well, whether or not we side with Team Hellman or Team Bentley, we all do this in one way or another. We all do a little chiseling. We do it on our Christmas letters, and we do it in social media, and on our resumes, and we do it during soul food here at church. Your real life doesn't have to be your real life anymore, at least not when you're describing it or showing it to the rest of the world. Now your real life can just kind of be a starting point for what you imagine your real life should be. You can have your true self, yourself with all your insecurities and struggles and joys and quirks and fears, and then there's the chiseled self, the perfect self, the self that we wish that we were. The self that we imagine life would be if we hadn't been kind of changed on the way down. It's the self that's been edited or cropped or arranged in a way that we think will make us seem the most attractive or the most lovable or will receive the most acceptance from those around us. Some of us, most of us, if not all of us, came to church this morning a little bit chiseled. We've altered ourselves to, to look a little smarter or a little more put together. We've kind of taken a penknife to our image that we can appear a little kinder or a little cooler or a little more in control than we know that we actually are. A few years ago, I was at a conference uh, during the week, and I had planned to, to fly back on Saturday night so that I could get most of the conference and still make it to church the next morning on Sunday. And uh, so I, I am getting at the airport. I'm getting ready for my flight, but I find out that my flight is getting delayed, and it got just delayed and delayed and delayed. And by the time I actually finally made it back to Boston, it was 3 a.m. on Sunday morning, and the airline had lost my bag. So I woke up to go to church just a few hours later, exhausted. I had no shampoo, no hairbrush, no makeup. My only option was really to go to church like as I was, barefaced, kind of hair thrown together, bags under my eyes. And this really, it wouldn't have really been a big deal, except I grew up in a part of the country where women, girls start wearing makeup like the day that they're born. And so you would never think about going to church without makeup on. So I found myself meeting people for the first time and apologizing that Sunday for how I looked. I'd be like, hi, I'm Bryn. It's so nice to meet you. This isn't how I really look. Except when I got home after church, I started to think, no, Bryn, that's exactly how you really look. You've just been taught your whole life to chisel it. And we all do this. We see how people in our society are judged when they're imperfect or when they make mistakes when they challenge the, the status quo, when they seem weak or they can't keep up. 
we know because we judge them ourselves. So in those areas where we know that we are too lopsided or broken, those things that we're sure would, would drive other people away from us if, we, if we, they saw us, we hide those things. We, we hold them back. And we end up with a world where people are judging and dividing one another, where people are condemning and criticizing one another, because at our core, we're really criticizing ourselves and the parts of ourselves that we don't think humans should be like. And we end up with a world where everyone is unaware of the fact that, that everyone is also doing some kind of chiseling in some way or another, which makes it that much more lonely that we're doing it. But what if, what if we don't have to? What if we don't have to hide the, the parts of our lives that we aren't proud of? What if there is a, a world in which we can actually be totally honest about who we are and confident that we will be loved in who we really are? Well, we are right in the middle of our Advent sermon series, which we've been calling The Gift of Wonder, Childlike Practices That Connect Us With Christ. And every Sunday this month, we've been looking at, at one practice or a lesson that we typically associate with children, but that is actually really helpful for adults, for grown-ups to hear too. And so far, we have looked at play and curiosity, and this morning, we're going to take a look at honesty. Because kids, as we know, have an easier time being themselves at first, flaws and all, goofy and all, than grown-ups. Kids say what they think. They are naturally, originally less self-conscious. They're less worried about what other people think when they show them their true selves. They play, they laugh, they get curious, they make mistakes. But over time, they learn what is socially acceptable to show and what isn't. So they learn to cover their mistakes. As we grow up, we learn to hide some things, to tailor some things, to chisel those things until we can present a more socially beautiful picture. So maybe we have a thing or two to learn about what it looks like to present a more true and honest picture of ourselves and how God responds to us when we do. So if you brought your Bible, I'd invite you to open up with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1. And let's thank Caitlin for reading that. That is also a tough passage to read. The first time I preached on the genealogy, I had Norm Jones read the entire thing. It's like 30 verses, and it's really complicated, and he got a standing ovation. It was awesome. <laughs> I was not going to put Caitlin through that, or any of you. Uh, but the genealogy, I love the genealogy. I actually try to preach on it regularly. It is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. And it might not actually feel like that Christmassy of a passage. If you, if you look at the King James Version, it's just kind of, it's, it uses this word begat over and over and over again. Begat basically means this person was the father, begat this person, and that person begat this person. 39 begats in a row. Begat, begat, begat. That's how Matthew chooses to start his gospel. It's not like the greatest hook in the world to start your epic tale. It's just like a list of old names, like Jehoshaphat and Zerubbabel, blah, blah, blah. There are no miracles in this genealogy. There are no epic stories. Not at first glance. So we stumble through the list if we have to. We want to get to the names that we do know, names like Jacob and, and Joseph. We're dying to get to the next of Matthew, the Christmas story, everyone's favorite. Who doesn't love the old tale about the starry, starry, silent night, the friendly ox? the twinkly-eyed magi, the baby who would rock the world. When you think about what's coming next in the story, the genealogy doesn't seem like it's really that important to spend a Sunday morning on. But for the Jewish people 
who first read this genealogy, this wasn't just some meaningless, monotonous list of names. This list was a story within a story, and they remembered this story so that they could remember who they were. Back then, like today, who you came from or where you came from mattered, and your family mattered. And so they'd write it down, and they'd memorize it, and they'd retell it at parties. They were super fun parties. And the telling and the retelling of those stories would remind them of where they'd come from and what mattered to them. In their day, they would hire uh, historians or, or genealogists to make them look good. The, the historians and genealogists were basically just hired guns. So if you wanted to tell your lineage or your story, you would hire someone to write it out in a way that would make you look really, really good. You'd hire people who would make sure everyone on the list reflected positively on you. They would include the heroes and the, the warriors and the great minds and the great leaders, anyone who was anyone who they could highlight in your family story. And then they would leave out the awkward ones, the ones with the bad reputations, the family members who take Christmas photos that look like reality. I don't know if that's anyone's reality, but I wouldn't include them in my genealogy. Genealogists in that day, they would chisel out the imperfections on the negative and they would make your, your snowflake just look a little bit more symmetrical than what the lopsided truth might have shown. Good Jewish families had a kind of formula for this. There were important things to include and important things to, to exclude when you were writing your good genealogy. So the first thing, everybody in your genealogy has to be Jewish. There had to be a pure bloodline. This was really important because religion was an ethnic thing. There was no mixing of foreigners into the family of God. Everybody has to be Jewish. Next, the genealogy could only contain men. In that day, women really weren't worth mentioning. They were embedded into the identity of their husbands or their sons or their fathers. It was the male bloodline that mattered. So a good genealogy didn't really include women if it could be avoided. So everyone in the genealogy has to be Jewish, everyone has to be male, and if you were really smart, your genealogy would also include heroes, men above reproach, men of character. You wouldn't include any shady characters from your past that might make your family line look bad. So three requirements in the genealogy, those listed had to be Jewish, they had to be male, and they had to be awesome. And that's how Matthew's genealogy of Jesus starts. Look at verse one. This is the first line in the New Testament, and it says, this is the record of Jesus, the Messiah. This is the genealogy. This is the origin, the, the genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, who this entire story is about. This is the beginning of the story. And right at the beginning, Matthew does what you're supposed to do. And he name drops two really important people in Jewish history. He says, the son of David and the son of Abraham. David and Abraham. David, we talked about David a couple weeks ago. David was the greatest king in their history. David had brought God's people unprecedented, unprecedented growth, freedom from their enemies, devotion to God, prosperity. Matthew references the name of David more than any other New Testament author. 17 times Matthew drops this title in reference to Jesus. And this is important because at this point in Israel's history, they're waiting for someone else, another great leader like David, to come. They're looking for a new king. They're looking for a new David to make everything right that had, had gone wrong in their world. So Matthew starts his story and he references King David. And for the people reading it, they would have thought, oh, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the one that we have been waiting for, the son of David. And then there's Abraham. What did God say to Abraham? 
God said that Abraham would be a light. He would be a light to all the nations, to all the Gentiles, and to all the people. This child who's coming, he would be the, the king, the royal heir of the son of David. But on a much bigger scale, this, children, this child would be a light and a hope to the whole world, just like Abraham. He'd been the, the fulfillment of a promise that had been made thousands of years earlier, David and Abraham. Okay, so far so good. The genealogy is looking pretty cool. We've got a king. We've got a light to the world. But then after verse 2, just after verse 2, things start to get a little weird. Because if Matthew's gospel was to paint the best possible picture of all the generations leading up to Jesus, then he really couldn't have made worse choices than he is about to make in who gets included in this genealogy. Look at verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Really? Tamar? She's a woman. She shouldn't be here. Women are the worst. Plus, Tamar isn't even Jewish. Three verses into the New Testament, and the story already has two strikes against it. Non-Jew, non-man. Matthew, what are you thinking? Plus, if you know anything about Tamar, you know we don't really bring up Tamar in kids' crew. She isn't really Sunday school material. The short version is that she describes herself, disguises herself as a prostitute so that she can seduce her father-in-law, Judah. She had reasons for doing it, but it's kind of a weird story. This is the kind of thing that you read about in the tabloids, not in the Bible. And here it is. It's right at the beginning of Jesus' family history, verse 3 of the New Testament. Tamar was the trifecta of people that you don't include in your genealogy. She was non-Jewish, non-man, and her story was not awesome. So skip to verse 5. Salmon. Salmon is just an unfortunate name because that's a fish name, not a person. <laughs> Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab? Rahab is another woman, and this woman, she didn't just pretend to be a prostitute. She was a prostitute. Plus, she was a Canaanite. She was a total outsider. They did not like Canaanites. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Okay, so we can work with Ruth. We did a, a sermon series on Ruth this summer. We know that she was, she was a lovely woman. Even though she's a woman, she doesn't belong here. At least her story is well known to Jewish people. She has a book named out after her in the Old Testament. They make stained glass windows after Ruth. So Ruth is okay, but, but she isn't Jewish either. She was a Moabite. She was a pagan outsider. Next, it says Obed was the father of Jesse. Yeah, we're going to go through the entire list of names this morning. Jesse was the father of King David. We like David. David was the father of Solomon. We, we kind of like Solomon too. And then it says, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Okay, Bathsheba. Now at this point, we can, we can kind of assume that maybe Matthew is just being a little bit careless, but now he's gone too far. Bathsheba was the one person in their family line that everybody knows about, but nobody is supposed to talk about. She's like the elephant in the room, especially during the holidays. Tradition says that she had an affair with King David, but if we're being honest, Bathsheba didn't have a choice in the matter. David was a king. He was a man of power in that day, and he summoned Bathsheba to him. She couldn't say no. Her story was tragic, and it was violent, and it was wrong, like lots of stories about women in the Bible are. What happened to Bathsheba didn't reflect how God had called kings to use their power. And so her story isn't one that they would have wanted to include 
in their genealogy. It didn't make David look very good because he wasn't very good in that story. And we get story after story after story, and the list just goes on and on and on. This genealogy, the genealogy of the Savior of the world, is just a list of one scandalous story after another. Prostitutes, adulterers, corrupt kings, oppressors, pagan outsiders, victims, women. Why does Matthew include all of these people in the genealogy in the story of Jesus? I mean, there were people with way more characteristics of value and purity than anyone on this list who were not included, people like Joseph. No, they weren't included. These people weren't included because they had somehow proven something or earned something because of their giftedness or their courage or their character. They weren't included because they were perfect or flawless little snowflakes who were worthy of mention. So why does Matthew include this list of names? Why does he highlight all the lopsided edges right at the beginning of the story, the opposite of what you're supposed to do when you're writing down a genealogy? Well, I don't think it had anything to do with the people themselves. I think it was always supposed to highlight who God was to them. It was because God was not afraid to work through flawed people who had hurt other people or who had been hurt by other people. And Matthew, who wrote this gospel, he knows this personally because this was Matthew's own story. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples, and he lived in the footsteps of of Jesus for three years. And he, he saw Jesus reaching out to the oppressed, and he witnessed the unbelievable compassion to Jesus with, with, for people who have a shady past, for Gentiles, for marginalized people groups. But more than that, Matthew knew what it was to be excluded because of who Matthew was. Matthew was a tax collector, and in that day, tax collectors were absolutely despised by the people of their day. They were the lowest of the low. They even had their own category of sinfulness. They would, be, they, they would say in the Bible, tax collectors and sinners. Like, even the sinners didn't want to be lumped in with tax collectors. It's likely that Matthew wouldn't have been allowed to go in the temple. He might have been disowned by his own family because of his profession. But in Matthew's gospel, Jesus sees this man named Matthew... And he's sitting at a tax collector's booth. And what does Jesus do when he, what does Jesus see when he sees Matthew? He doesn't see some perfect snowflake. And he doesn't see a ruined snowflake. Probably he saw both at the same time. And he turns to Matthew and he says, follow me. And Matthew gets up and, and everything else that is still true about his life now is, is defined by Jesus. And he follows Jesus. Everything is different. Matthew knows firsthand that the lopsided names in Jesus' family line were not the exception, they were the point. He knew the good news of Jesus wasn't just for this elite family, for a few religious zealots or superstars or one gender or one ethnic group. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female, neither slave nor free. The story that everyone expected in the genealogy of their Messiah is not the story that they get. The story that they get is all of these unlikely people, Jews and Gentiles, saints and sinners, princes and paupers, they're all adopted into the family of God, and so are we. Because if this was Matthew's story, and if it's our story, it was also Jesus' story. All throughout Jesus' life, he would face pressure on all sides, pressure to lead like the foreign powers of the day or like the ancient kings, pressure to take the world by force, show your strength, hide your weakness, take over the world. But Jesus wouldn't approach the world or the people that way. 
And he didn't demand that, that the people of his day clean themselves up or insist that they should be better or reprimand them for being broken. Instead, in his life, he went about the slow, quiet work of meeting people in their most lopsided, broken places and healing the sick and releasing the captives and proclaiming good news to the poor. And then one day he proclaimed freedom in a different way. Rather than puffing himself up and making himself look good through some military victory, rather than condemning everyone else when we just can't seem to get it right, he went to the cross. And the prophet Isaiah would describe it this way. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by humankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus didn't chisel away all our flaws and imperfections. He chose to embrace them himself, to carry them, to heal them, to redeem them. He entered into our places of woundedness, our places of vulnerability, our fears, our shame, our secret struggles, all the ones we try to fortify, all the ones we try to hide. And the promise is that when we allow Jesus to honestly meet us in those areas where we are convinced that we are too bruised to be healed, too flawed to be loved, too broken to be good for everything, anything, that's where the true healing can start. Because it's in those places of weakness that God can display most powerfully God's own strength. Now, this has dramatic implications about what happens when we realize that we have lopsided edges and whopper job places. It means we can be honest about them. We can call them what they are. We are free to admit it. We're free to confess it, to make it right with those who are affected by it. Those struggles or, or imperfections or insecurities, they don't define us. Jesus does. Those edges no longer dictate how we act. Jesus does. And what happens over time as we offer those places to Jesus and we allow Jesus to enter into those places is that God's way starts to seep into our way. And we actually do become more loving and more Christ-like and more joyful and more whole because eventually we are, we are growing to look into people who look like Christ. Rather than shoehorning and chiseling us into some perfect ideal, God intends us to be broken free of all of that and to be embraced as we are and then to let Jesus change us. But the invitation to God's people isn't just to receive that healing and that embrace. It's to join in the healing and embrace of others. Because once you and I have experienced this, and I, I can, would imagine that you can think of a time in your life when you have been honest with God or with another person in the church community and you have received embrace. And if you haven't, imagine what that would be like. What we have experienced is the God who sees our rough edges and loves us anyway, then we will start to see other people as God sees them too. Every moment of every day, God is offering us and those around us the opportunity to be healed and to be set free from the things that we want to hide from. And if what we talk about here at Anchor Bay has any relevance to our actual lives, then I dream that no matter who we are or what our stories look like, that we can be people who are consistently inviting one another into deeper and deeper honesty and healing 
through how we hold space for and receive one another's whole selves. And in those places to remind each other of who God has called us to be. Everyone, everywhere you meet, is chiseling their image somehow. Every time you interact with someone, you're not just interacting with what you see in front of you. You are interacting with everything else that they've chiseled away and tried to hide in the negative. And in the way we respond to that, in the way that we give feedback on papers if we're professors, in the ways that we talk about people when they aren't there, in the way that we confront people on a difficult topic or ask them to take out the trash, we can communicate judgment for all the flaws in their story. We can pick apart their vulnerabilities or their rough edges. And when it comes to people who are closest to us, we know how to do that really well. Or we can become safe spaces for people to share their honest selves their honest stories, their honest struggles, and to enter it into them with them. We can help them heal by seeing them for who they actually are and standing by them anyway, if for no other reason than that's, because what, than that's what Jesus has done for us. So right now, I want to invite you to take a moment and think about your life. What are some things that you are hiding from God and God's people, maybe even from yourself, that could begin to heal or be redeemed if you were truly honest about it, if you were truly honest with yourself or with a Christian brother or sister or with God. Now, who is someone who could show you Christ's light if you were to open up to them about that place? Now, think about the people in your life. And maybe it's a family member where some of us are going to see family this week. And maybe we have a difficult relationship with a family member or a friend. Maybe there's someone who you are tempted to judge or to want to shut down if they're honest with you about who they really are. How might God be inviting you to be an agent, a beacon of hope and healing and light to them instead? So maybe that means when you're out doing your last minute kind of Christmas food shopping, if, if you see a kid who's having a, a struggle in a grocery store and a parent who's trying to, to help them, maybe you respond with a word of empathy instead of annoyance. Maybe that means asking the story behind the story, particularly if you have a difficult relationship with somebody or you're, you're having a, a difficult conversation with somebody, asking not just about the issue that's between you, but asking about the person's life. What brings them joy? What brings them pain? Instead of making assumptions about their character or their intentions or their beliefs. That way you can start your conversations with them, seeing them as whole people, and use that as common ground for anything else that you need to talk about. And maybe the next time someone opens up to you about something real that's going on in their life, you can thank them for trusting you with it. And the promise is that when we do this, when we get to know each other's stories of struggle and strength, it'll become even more embedded in us that everyone around us is also a little lopsided, a little whopper-jawed. So maybe it's okay that I am too. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you came to earth to see us and to know us. And that you came into a world that was far from perfect. And you joined us in community so that we could know what it's like to be loved and embraced even in those places of imperfection, shame, fear, sin. So we pray this week that as we think about our own lives, as we think about the people around us, we pray that you would 
stick this message in, in there in our hearts. That you would give us courage by your spirit to be honest and to embrace and be embraced. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.